continue in worship. We are reminded of the idea of Lord have mercy. Have you ever said that? Lord have mercy. Ever? She says it every day I'm here. Lord have mercy. I'll say something she can kind of, you know, even if my back is turned, I see that look of Lord have mercy on my God. You know, it has nothing to do with you, Noah. You're just fine, okay? I got you, Noah. Alright? Lord have mercy. Have you thought of the different ways you can say that? There is that Lord have mercy. Oh my goodness. You know, it's kind of like when my mother or her grandmother would say, bless you. <laughs> there are different ways she could tell me, bless you. And it meant totally different things. You know, you all know what the Southern code for bless you is, right? Or bless their little heart. Alright? You know, normally not a good thing. Uh, you don't, Barb, you don't know what, oh, if my grandmother would say, oh, bless your heart, she might have been saying, really, bless your heart, or she might have been saying, there is no hope for you, except bless your heart. <laughs> okay, in the vernacular, Joyce Bowling and the Holler of Kentucky, just get over it, you know, uh, or no more duck fits on that, you know. Bless you, or Lord, just, you know, bless your little heart. Time to back. Lord, that verse is one of those phrases. It's a phrase, though, that I think sometimes we need to repeat. When we wake up in the morning, how would our lives be different if we said, Lord, have mercy? Or when we lie down, not Lord, have mercy. When I interact with somebody in the grocery store, the doctor's office, or the like. What if I said as I walked in, Lord have mercy? How would that maybe change? The thing with mercy, though, is we all want it, but many times we don't want to give it. You know, because we can have a way of saying, you know, Lord have mercy on Jenna, because goodness gracious, I don't want to, I don't want to give it. Yeah, I know she said that a lot about you. Yeah. You know, but we agree with her most of the time. Uh, you know, but, but time and time again, we are, we are told, as James says here in, in, in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by their law against freedom. We'll get to that. But judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. For mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord, have mercy. That also means that to some extent we will be put into situations where mercy is called for. Mercy is not everything's okay. That's not mercy. God doesn't say everything's okay, therefore I have mercy on you. He can have mercy on us because there is a standard that says something is amiss. Something isn't right. You only get mercy if there's something that you're judged against. A standard. Whatever that may be. So I say, Lord, have mercy. Mercy on me and on us. But part of the reason we, we all like to have mercy, but we don't like to give it, is we all like to be comfortable. 
me, brother, not many of us get up in the morning to say, how uncomfortable can I be today? Now, some of us get up and go, who can I make squirm a little bit today? Daniel, I don't ever do that to you as well. No. Never. We all like to be comfortable. In fact, our, our, our world is all about comfort to some extent. You need this to be comfortable. You know, I have learned something in, in, since I've been here, seven years. You know, we bought a car when we came here, uh, you know, from a van. And we did that because we were going to have three kids in car seats. We don't have a vehicle that three kids in car seats fit anywhere, one, comfortably. And, and two, you know, we also, as, uh, as parents, knew that if we got something bigger, we could separate them to some extent. And any of you with multiple children know that separation is a wonderful thing. Right, Marty? You know? I get it. My mom had a man. Why? To separate us. You know, I was the innocent one. I was got picked on. Yeah. Why is initially the first one to die? Never mind. There's other stories with that. I, I can prove that to you. But, but, but we wanted, and I have found out there's something about cars that I may never go without. And it's heated seats. Okay, I love the comfort of a heated seat. I never knew those existed. Well, I did. I wasn't ever going to pay for those. And now I get in the van, and it's cold out. And I turn that thing on high. Woo! The good. You know, those of you who are never having to miss it out. You know, uh, my brother and I were talking about this this, this week and how much he loves his heated seats too. You know, and, and you don't realize what comfort. You, do you think Henry Ford, when he built it, was ever thinking about heated seats or steering wheels or any of that like? I mean, no. He wasn't. We all like to be comfortable. You know, yet comfort is a very relative thing. Do you know how those in Far East Asia like to be comfortable, what they sit on? The floor. Even those 80, 85, 90, their comfort is to sit on the floor. In, in the days of James, the, the comfort wasn't sitting in a chair per se, but it was reclining back and not in the lazy boy recliner style of things. They might have had a pillow for the bodies. Their comfort is a fairly uh, recent thing. I'm reminded of Pastor Kim this morning. Who, and I probably told this joke, or he's told it and heard it. What would happen if I laid you all or any Baptist end to end on a pew? Anybody remember the punchline? Comfortable Baptists. You know, if you laid side by side uh, on the pew, you'd be more comfortable. You know? And, and I could give you even better of a nap than, than what you know might happen, anyways. But you realize even the Uncomfortableness of a pew is a recent discovery or idea. For years, they didn't have pews per se. Now, in the early church, they may have had some seats, but you know, most of the time, it wouldn't have been uncommon for people to stand during the whole time of worship. Can you imagine if you had to stand every time I spoke? Can you imagine that, Colby? No. It'd be hard to fall asleep though if you're standing, right? Not that you fall asleep now. But it'd be harder, right? You know, they'd stand. They rented a few seats. 
You know, it, however, we all like comfort in such a way that when pews started to come into the uh, mainstay, you know what actually happened? They didn't have pews like this. There would be boxes to some extent, squares. It was beautiful in some ways because families would sit together, you know, and, and the kids would sit facing the parents and the parents would sit facing the uh, pastor or the preacher because it was really good. You could watch the kids while still seeing the pastor. And then what kind of happened? People started to go, ooh, I kind of like this. So then they started to do this wonderful thing. They made them comfortable. Well, they made theirs comfortable. They would be like, uh, and today, you know, if, you know, because the strangers always sit in that pew. I mean, rarely have you guys sat a pew up. It's almost sacrilegious, you know, I grew up. You know, uh, you know, it, it, it is to some extent. Jonathan and Cindy have always been on that back row right there. They save one spot for Pharaoh when she's here, you know. Uh, we know this. But what they started to do is they didn't just let their pew be like everybody else because they wanted it to stand out. So sometimes they would build bigger sides, you know, so that you could only see just a little bit in. Sometimes they'd put canopies over top. They would put paths in there. And some in the, you know, 1700s and early 1800s, they would even find a way to have their own space here. No, not like we think of it, but they would bring their poles in and they would get a nice little fire going in their pew. Ah, doesn't that sound nice? And then what they would do, I mean, this is where we Baptists got that you don't sit in anybody else's seat. You know, not only is there, you know, imprint in your seat, you know, Barb, I can tell you, no one sat there, okay? I think they're too scared. Because they may have to play the organ one, and they're afraid if they're that close to me, what might happen? You know, but no one sat there. We all know that's Bard's seat. Poor Stroman didn't know where to sit these past couple months, but he found friends out there, right, Stroman? You know, you're always there with Chad or Massey. Then you didn't dare sit in somebody else's pew. Why? Because that was their pew. And they went to links that when it, became, when it was their pew, you know what they would do? It would be written in their will who got their pew.
Suppose a man comes wearing meeting into your meeting wearing a cold gold rings and fine clothes, and a poor man and filthy old clothes also come in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, Why don't you actually get down below the footstool of the sanctuary so we can't see you or hear you out of sight, out of mind? Have you not? Discriminate among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my dearly loved ones. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom? But you have dishonored the poor. Are you not are not the rich ones the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him who belongs to you? See, we, 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 we think that this idea of church versus culture, church and culture, is a new thing. But James is combating this idea of church and culture. Now, back in James' day, there was no idea of upward mobility, like we know it, which we still have issues with that, you ask me. But there was really no hope of moving up in the world. In fact, it, uh, there, there was a little bit of this kind of rivalry in the town I, I grew up in, the Hamilton. There was known as those who had the old money and those who had the new money. Guess who didn't like who? The old money didn't like the new money. The new money didn't care. Because why? They had money. And then you had the no monies. All right? You know, but that's to some extent what happened in those days. You had the status symbol of you had those that were in leadership, the old Roman money that they inherited in that had this thing. And then you had this new money of merchants and the like. And then you would have others that had this idea of money and status, and they made sure everyone knew who they were. And sometimes it was about how they looked. Church and culture. We still have this issue today, do we not? And, and sometimes we've got to remember, it isn't the overt things that, that will infiltrate the church. It is the subtle ways that the culture infiltrates my life, your life, in the church life. And I think James reminds us of some of this. The subtlety that was going on. Here are believers they're countercultural in this world. Here are, is to be this family people where there is no difference between one and another. And James says in verse 27, he says, keep oneself from being polluted or stained by the world. And those are, there are overt things that we would call sin. And then those are covert things. And one of those, I think, that we must guard against is status. What does status mean for you and me? What makes someone valuable? Where, where is their dignity from? How would we rate someone? What does that look like in the church? Where has it looked like in the church? Those people that we unintentionally or sometimes intentionally, but most of the time unintentionally, we want them out of sight, out of mind. 
Or maybe we'll let them be seen but not be heard. Who is it? Is it because of a name they have? Is it because of longevity? And all of a sudden that has a special status because of how long someone has been a part of this church or a church? Does that give us extra status for some reason? You know, should we grovel at uh, Rusty's feet because he is the chair of the trustees or better yet, should we grovel at Larry's feet because he is the, the moderator of the First Baptist Church St. Paris? Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, uh -huh. you know. Or should we do it because he is the bringer of the donuts? You know, maybe that's more important. You know. Amen. And no, I didn't mention that one. I, I will. Will you kiss Larry's feet because he brought? No. Okay, good, good call. Good call. <laughs> Sorry, we didn't know I know it was good. Hey, so without Kathy, you don't get no donuts. No, but we do. We, we can have status symbols in churches, in denominations, in any kind of gathering. We can sometimes unintentionally use the church to remind people of how good we are. And James has words for us. He said, the Lord Jesus Christ does not show Favoritism. God does not discriminate. And that's a good thing. And that's something we need to say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy because he doesn't look at you and me and, and, and discriminate between who is the better one. It doesn't matter to the Lord. Lord, that throughout time and time again within his story known as Scripture, the Bible, the word of God, whatever you want to put to it, says time and time again, I don't look at things as man looks at. You want a prime example of this? Look at the first two kings of Israel. Who was the first king of Israel? And some of you who know your Bible history. Saul. You want to know something about Saul that Scripture tells us? He was a good-looking man. That's why I would never be the first king of Israel, right? You know? He was ahead above everyone else. He was the idea. He was Dan George. Or Dan George was him. <laughs> everyone looks up to Dan, whether we like it or not. And we love it. Sometimes. Most of the time. Right, Noah? Say yes. No. Oh, okay. He, I mean, Saul looked the part. Saul was everything a nation would have wanted in their leader, as far as looks. Who was the second king of Israel? David. Let's just kind of keep it in the family. That's like a Noah George. I mean, you're good looking, but you're nothing compared to your dad, are you? No, no, no. Look at me, Noah. Could you wear your dad's sweater today? I mean, what would that look on you? Do you what? Yeah. It would be a dress, wouldn't it? <laughs> you know, it wouldn't fit you, would it? See, David was almost the exact opposite 
of Saul. Almost, it really was in a lot of ways. Where Saul was big, David was short. Where Saul was important, David was the one that when he was even anointed by the prophet Samuel at the time, they didn't even consider him to be one of those who could have been king. He was still out in the fields. Until the prophet says, don't you have any others? And then it was, well, there is one. Happens to be the youngest one. But he's, he's dealing with sheep. Why don't we go sit down and have a meal while you're here? We'll go get him. And, and the prophet says, no, no. Until he comes, my work is not done. And yet, what do we know of David? <coughs> Scripture says, as messed up as he was, and he was messed up. He was a person at the gospel. And now if we would figure out what that means, maybe we would understand this idea of why James has so harsh words here. When he says, when you discriminate among yourselves, you have become judges with evil thoughts. When you discriminate among yourselves, you blaspheme the name of him who, to whom you belong. You, you see what he said? These are harsh words that we as the church need to hear again and again. Because I believe that if, if, if the book of James would have been read from the pulpits when they were starting to get this idea of comfort pews, something would have changed. There would have been something different happen with this if we would see things from God's point of view, which is why we pray for, for wisdom, is it not? We pray for wisdom because we need to see God's viewpoint. It doesn't matter how big Noah is. Okay? It doesn't matter how much you weigh. Okay? Because if you have the heart of God, and if you are faithfully following Jesus, then you can show anybody, even a tall, big guy like your dad, how to live right. Yeah, he got that look like, yeah, you will. I got it. But would we let someone like that leave? Would we? Or would we do as, as happens in our culture a lot of times where you've got to wait your turn? There's beauty to waiting our turn and learning things, but there's sometimes when we have to let those who the Lord is calling to leave. Like a new David. Who will be the new David among us? And will we allow them to do what they've been anointed to do? Who will take it up? See, this is why we need God's viewpoint. And, and James is saying, if you see God's viewpoint, you will know this. Exactly, Emma Rose. We got you. We will know this, that if we will love our neighbor as ourselves, we will be doing right. We will show mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. We are bound to something. And it is the law that will produce freedom which is to love others as yourself. And maybe this is the issue. When we discriminate against one another, when we, when we in the body of Christ, will say to some, you just go sit on the sidelines while I do this. We're really not learning to love ourselves. 
I wonder if sometimes we don't show mercy to others because we've never shown mercy to ourselves. In an upcoming series, we're going to talk about what forgiveness means. In particular, what does it mean to forgive ourselves of the things we have done? What does it mean to accept the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God that says, yeah, you messed up. There was a standard and you missed it. But my heart for you still says, I love you. And I have a better plan for you. Receiving mercy. Jesus said this in the Beatitude. When he said, blessed are those who are merciful. Why? For they will receive mercy. When Jesus said this, if you forgive others, you will be forgiven. James is just doing what Jesus did. Tying the two together. Let us learn to love others as we love ourselves. May we love ourselves so we have something to give to others. I'm no pro at this by any stretch. I have my own issues, many of them. As I like to tell people, it's not a competition. But we all have. We all need mercy. And we all need to show mercy. We get what we show. Some may call this by different things. But I think we can say this is a little bit of what Jesus said. What are we showing up? You don't know. Maybe what are you getting back? I, I've never met somebody who, if you show them mercy and love long enough, will continue to hate and hate and hate. They may just go away, but they won't give it back. Showing mercy. What do you want? Show it. Mercy is at God's heart. Mercy, though, is not natural. We all want what we want. We want to be comfortable. So don't mess up my comfort. Don't take from me. Mercy is not natural. Natural is to get revenge. Natural is to proclaim who you are. Natural is to say, look at me and what I've done and who I what I can do. Mercy, though, is who God is. The God of mercy. God of compassion. The one who, as James says here, shows those who are poor in the eyes of the world. The nation of Israel wasn't some special nation. But God said, ooh, that's a bad, that's a cream of the crop. I said, I'm take that. Why did God choose Israel? Because he did. But it wasn't because they deserved it more than any others. There is no nation that deserves anything greater from God than any other. Now, Israel may be God's chosen people, but he is still only chosen because God said they're mine. Not because they deserve it. The same with you and me. We are God's people today, known as the church, but we don't deserve that title. Because if it was up to you and me, we wouldn't show mercy and grace and love. We would not be patient and kind and gentle. But that is contrary. Yet, 
it is true. Why? Because Jesus is the Messiah and Lord. First one. Dearly beloved believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't just a name. Okay? It isn't Jesus Christ as in Jeremy Spence. It's talking about Jesus being the Messiah, the hope one of all of the ancient scriptures of the Old Testament. He is the one prophesied, which means he is the king of Israel. And Lord, he gets to say what happens. He is the rightful ruler of all. But he doesn't just say that. See, some over the years, including some in the Reformation, said James lacks a lot of heavy theology. And it's not very overt. But can I tell you something? This phrase here, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, is not a simple theology, a way of doing God. What he is saying very much is that Jesus is the glory of God. What did you realize? This is the very presence, the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament that filled the temple when it was dedicated. The very presence of God. Jesus is that person. He is that presence. And if we would get an idea of the glory of God, we wouldn't be looking at one another very much. All we would be saying is, are you in the Lord's house? Are you part of Jesus' family? Because if you are, I don't care what you look like, what you smell like, let's go on. But is that how we normally do it? Probably not, including myself. I realize I'm not always the standard. That's why it's okay that I'm reminded by others, Lord, have mercy on me. You get it again. Lord, have mercy over and over. Because if I'm looking at the Shekinah glory of God, if I'm looking at Jesus himself, I'm not too worried about what you look like or not. It doesn't matter that Clinton's just wearing a polo shirt and Ron Butter's wearing a, a, a shirt and tie. Does that make Ron better than, than Clinton? Not necessarily. It means Ron's wearing what he's comfortable with. Clinton, are you pretty comfortable in it? Yeah. I get it. You know? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're wearing a hoodie or not. What matters is, are you in Christ? Who do you say Christ? What are you doing about being in Christ? You know, we have a lot to learn in our world. But you know what? If we focus on who Jesus is, we'll get there. And in the meantime, our prayer ought to be, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on my soul, your soul, and collectively, our soul, known as the church. And there will be times when we will miss the royal law of the law against you. Love your neighbor as the Lord saw.
We may not do the murder. We may not do the adultery. But when we fail to see the value of a believer, we do the same thing. When we show prejudice, when we show discrimination, whether intentionally or sometimes unintentionally, we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. But there's hope. And the hope is, Lord, have mercy on my soul, on your soul, this day. We pray with you, Father, God, we thank you for this time. Lord, we ask that you would have mercy on our souls. That we would realize our need for mercy and that we would also extend mercy to one another. That we would, we would just continue to realize that just by showing mercy and love and grace to someone else doesn't mean we lose it, but instead that we will be gaining it. And Lord, may you convict us individually and collectively in how we have failed to live up to your word where we do need mercy. Not because, well, it's okay if I messed up a little. God will just forgive me. No. Because we want to do right by your name. We want to give you the glory, not just in word, but in deeds. We want to be your people as fully as we can be. And so, Lord, have mercy upon us this day. And as we seek your mercy, we will be led to the foot of the cross. For we're all equal. Where the one who is down can be just like the one who is on the cross next to our Lord. When our Lord said, today you will be with me in paradise. What an act of mercy. As well as Father forgive when they know not what they do. What an act of mercy. So Lord, whether we're the Roman soldier or the Jewish leader that looks nice or the thief. And ashamed of what has happened. But when we come to you, mercy reigns over judgment. Mercy is at your heart. Until the day you do come to judge, and then it will be too late. But Lord, in the meantime, you say you do not delight that any shall perish without you, but that all would come to good. And so Lord, have mercy on us this day, and lead us to power we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.